Welcome to the Nonprofit Insider. On this podcast, we give a little bit more of a commentary feel to some of the things that are happening in the nonprofit space. And we're not just talking fundraising either. We talk about all the aspects of being in the nonprofit world, the people, the relationship, the news, the politics, and the money that all comes with being in this world. Stick around. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to the Nonprofit Insider Podcast. I am your host, Swim Kareem, and so excited to have you back in for another episode, episode six. And we've got some really good topics to talk about in today's episode. So stay tuned, stick around. We're going to get into the meat of it. Uh, be sure to connect with us on Instagram uh, at the Nonprofit Insider. You can connect with me there. Send me some DMs. We have people sending in some nonprofit horror stories. So things are moving in the right direction. Really on, early on, we're off to a really good start. Uh, so yeah, we'd appreciate it. I want to start with this. I grew up my childhood in the 90s. And that was a time where hip hop was really, really on a, on a, we thought it was like taking off like a rocket ship, but it was really just getting started. And so for me, that was a time where I was listening eight, nine years old to a lot of Craig Mack, uh, Puffy and Mace were really big. They were always on the radio. Erica Baidu was making a name for herself. Lauren Hill was pretty much every other song on the radio. She was really good. LL Cool J. I was listening to a lot of Queen Latifah, MC Light. Just a, a lot of icons in the hip-hop world. And it really, for me, it really wasn't even until college that I started to expand the music I was listening to because hip-hop was so ingrained in me, being so close to New York and uh, some of the activities that were happening out there for the mecca of hip-hop. It, it wasn't until college I really started to listen to Pink Floyd for the first time. I heard uh, the Beatles for the first time. It was really at that moment that I started to expand But for me, so much of my connection to hip-hop was through my older brother. He was a DJ. He would do parties in our basement, uh, had people over. And that was like, for me, he was really like one of my first role models, seeing him on the ones and twos doing all types of amazing pieces of art, honestly, with music and lyrics. And he could rhyme and he was doing the beats. And it was just so cool to see your older brother doing these amazing things. And he had a, a friend that he did music with. And so they would partner together. And my, I think my brother mainly did the DJ stuff and the friend did a little bit more of the lyrical stuff. But these two were just so good together. And I have my brother, is, he's 16 years older than me. So he's, he's significantly older. You know, when I say an older brother, he really is an older brother. But I just remember them getting together and doing some pretty amazing things. And I was still kind of young at the time, but I just remember a little bit of a energy shift as it related to not only my brother, but the community and the neighborhood, because the friend that he did the music with ended up getting uh, ended up getting shot and killed, actually. And they were young. I mean, he was maybe around, I don't know, 17, 18 years old, something like that, out there in West Philadelphia. 
And, and, and so much so that I remember the, the park I used to go to. It was Haddington Park, West Philadelphia, 56 and Haverford area. I went to school out in that area. The park I used to go to to play basketball, they had a memorial on the side of the building of the recreation, the Haddington Recreation Center in his name. And I played at that park. And, and it was just one of those being so young i didn't put two and two together it wasn't until i was much older in my teenage years of realizing the impact be it small but the impact that gun violence had on me and my life and the life of the people in my family so that's why when i saw a, a really amazing article come across my feed a few months back, I knew I wanted to be able to talk about it because there are so many people in the United States that are affected by gun violence. And you're seeing more and more mass shootings that are happening. I think even just now in the first three months of 2023, there have been 75 uh, gun shootings of three or more people that have passed away in one sitting. And so it's just one of those things where it could be hard to wrap your brain around the amount of gun deaths that happen in America at any point in time. And it's enough to drive you crazy, to be completely honest. So I saw an article by, uh, it was on the AP Philanthropy site. I'll put it in the show notes, of course, titled Memphis Nonprofit Puts Money Behind Drive to Curb Gun Deaths. And it's by... Talia Betty or Beatty, I apologize if I'm saying her, her, her name incorrectly, but she she basically has a, a really great or they have a really great story about this nonprofit by the name of Youth Villages and Youth Villages has been around in the Memphis area since 1987, started by a community member there by the name of a community member by the name of Patrick Lawler. Um, in 1987, and they would focus on helping individuals under the age of basically 25 and under, just going about everyday life and advancing themselves in the greater uh, Phoenix, or excuse me, the greater Memphis area. So as I'm reading the article, they're talking about, they have a really great story about the most recent, one of the most recent shootings out of Memphis in September of 2022, where uh, a gunman was going around, and gunman's such a proper term because you don't really see too many women doing these mass shootings, but that's another topic for another day, about a gunman going around the Memphis area and basically shooting people and, and how it rocked the city. And so they, they highlight this organization that's doing some pretty amazing work in the Memphis area to try to stop gun violence and stop homicides, and that's happening in, in a lot of cities, Memphis. Philadelphia, New Orleans, Nashville, Miami, uh, Los Angeles. There's a lot of cities where gun deaths may not make the five o'clock news from coast to coast. Uh, but there are a lot of people that are affected, just like me, just like my brother, that were affected by gun violence in a way that's uh, almost too hard to describe, to be honest. And so I want to put it in the show notes. I want to have you all get a chance to look at it. It's such a good article that if I tried to synthesize it, it would take, I need the whole episode because she, she, she does a really good job of an article, amazing writing, great storytelling. But there's one part in, in the article I wanted to be able to share that I thought was so interesting. 
Uh, she says, and I quote, Youth Villages set a lofty goal. It would raise $60 million from donors over four years with the intent of reducing homicides in Memphis by 30% by 2026, end quote. And, and look, we talk a little bit, we, we talk not, not a little bit, we talk a lot of it of money as it relates to what we do here in Nonprofit Insider. Again, not just the fundraising aspect, we talk about all different aspects of money. Uh, but when you think about raising $60 million just to reduce homicides by just 30%, it, it goes to show that we have a little bit of a problem, not even a little bit, we have a problem in the U.S. as it relates to gun deaths because you can have all that access to money uh, if you're able to get $60 million. And I think it said a little bit later on, they at the time of print of this article, they had raised $16 million. They even got a $3 million donation from the Bomber Group which, of course, is started uh, by the former Microsoft CEO Steve Ballmer and his wife Connie Ballmer out there in the greater Seattle, Bellevue, uh, Hunts Point area. But if you think about having $60 million and you could use that money and reduce homicides by 30% over three years, and that's a win, folks, that's a win for them. If they were able to reduce the homicides by just a third in three years, that just goes to show we have something on our hands that uh, deserves even more attention, deserves the proper amount of attention and resources because gun violence is something that's being affected uh, in the year 2023. And it was something that affected me even back in the 1990s. It's a reminder of the grit and grind work that many nonprofits and many nonprofit workers are doing across America on a pretty much daily basis. So Shout out to this organization. I'm going to link this article in the show notes. Be sure to check it out below. I live in New Mexico, and one of the things I just will always talk about is the fact that I live in New Mexico. Now, is it a place that I think I'm going to live forever? No, probably not. But as a person who grew up in Philadelphia, a lot of people in that area, the New Jersey, New York, Boston, D.C., Baltimore area. I don't think a lot of folks out there truly understand how amazing it is to live out in New Mexico and don't even really think about it. I know I was the same way. I knew Florida and Texas and California, but a lot of the middle states I didn't really know. So I'm always going to talk about the fact that New Mexico is an amazing place. Um, and I'm always going to let it be known for those, for those out there. You know, what do they say? Like, 40% of America lives within five miles of the zip code they grew up in. I mean, my brother lives in like the same zip code I'm pretty sure that we grew up in or like two zip codes away and he's, you know, 50. So I, I'm, I'm always going to talk about living in New Mexico. And one of the things being out here is I'm a part of this thing called the ABQ Volunteer Advisory Board. And ABQ, that's for those of you who don't know, that's the Albuquerque uh, you know, ABQ. So as part of the Albuquerque Volunteer Advisory Board. But I had mentioned on on this particular call, again, it was like the last call, it was in December, right before the turn of the year. I had mentioned on the call that the organization that I work for has a partnership with this uh, company called scrapbook.com. And as you would imagine, if you go to scrapbook.com, you can imagine what they sell. They sell all types of things art related, whether you're 
scrapbooking, you're creating designs, you're doing invitations. They do all the types of things you would imagine that come in the circle of scrapbooking. And I remember my supervisor, my boss had said, hey, we have this partnership and they give us, uh, they can give us all types of handmade cards. And listen, I am a person, I love stationery, I love cards, I love doing birthday cards for volunteers, I love doing thank you cards. It's something that I think a lot of nonprofits do that's easy to do, and it's something that nonprofits should continue to do because it's a really good way to just go about communicating. And so my, my advisor said, hey, my supervisor said, hey, you should reach out to them and see if we can get some cards. So I did, reached out to one of the team members, and I'm thinking that they're gonna send me like a couple of cards. And I said, you know, I want, they said, how many cards do you want? And I said, I want 7,000 cards, just kind of like throwing it out there. And sure enough, I'm thinking they're gonna send me these 7,000 cards over the span of like a year, like 2,000 at a time. They sent me all 7,000 cards all at once. So shout out to scrapbook.com. And these cards are really great. They're, they're, they got the cards, they got the envelopes, they're really uniquely designed, all types of colors, all types of patterns. I mean, just really some amazing things. Someone just texted me. and But but I have so many cards. I mean, they're just sitting in my office. So I'm on this volunteer advisory board and I put in the chat, hey, I know we've got the holiday season coming up. I know we've got New Year's coming up. One of the volunteer recognition programs we like to do is do birthday cards. If anyone needs any cards, let me know because I'm sitting on like a ton, I mean a stack of cards. And you know, if anyone wants wants some, come get some. And sure enough, maybe like an hour later after that call ended, I got a, a email from a lady named Kathy who's a part of the Rio Grande Food Project. And she said, hey, is that offer for the cards on the table because we will be interested in that? And I said, yeah, absolutely, no problem. Like, you wanna come pick them up? And she said, no. Well, she said, yeah, I'll pick them up, but I have a coworker actually that has the ability to pick them up. Is that okay? I said, yeah, no problem. So like three, four days later, one of her coworkers named James, he had just moved here from San Diego back in like February or something like that, like a year before, uh, to work with this organization, came and picked it up. So we're talking and just learning more about each other. And it had me really thinking to myself, and it, and it reminded me that nonprofits have a unique relationship where they work with other nonprofits well. And, you know, you, you see or you hear so much about the nonprofit space being a space where organizations are able to do partnerships in a way that you don't quite see as much in the for-profit space or even in governments. And I think it starts with the undercurrent of nonprofit. With many nonprofits, the ultimate goal is social good. Compared to the likes of a, a for-profit organization, the goal, for the most part, is making money. Listen, we live in America, I love money, I love making money, I love other people making money, but the goal is a little bit different. In the for-profit space, generally the goal is how can we make our society better? How can we make education better? How can we make our healthcare better? How can we make disaster response better, right? How can we do all of those things so that 
a particular group of people are better off and then society as a whole are better off, which is why a lot of folks really kind of gravitated towards the trickle-down economy. That's a bit of a right turn, right? But it's like the idea of, oh, we can, if we make a certain group of people have more money, then everybody kind of like benefits. It, a little bit different, again, right turn there. But so much of the nonprofit space is really about how can we make society as a whole just a little bit better. And by helping one group of individuals, we in turn are really kind of helping everybody uh, as a whole. For me, when I had reached out or when uh, Kathy with the Rio Grande Food Project reached out to me and said, hey, we, we, we'd like those cards, that didn't directly benefit me or my organization I work with or the work that I do, but it benefited us as a whole because I know they're doing amazing work and listen, it's okay to be able to say, hey, let's support each other. You kind of see this a little bit to a degree in government, but we see how governments struggle to work together, right? Now, part of it is because there's such a bohemian. Government is so big. There's so many intricate parts in terms of money and taxes and the way it's kind of legislated and worked and stuff like that. So you see a little bit in the, in the government space, but it's so big that it's just so, so different. Where in the nonprofit space, we're not competing, right, head on. I always like to say when the nonprofit says we're competing, but it's a little bit more veiled, you know, like a lady getting married, right? She has the veil on. Like you kind of see her face, but you don't really see her face until the veil's removed. Nonprofits kind of work in a similar fashion, right? Nonprofits may compete for volunteers or board members. They definitely compete for funds, for foundations and grants, but they're not competing head on in the same way that a restaurant competes with another restaurant or the way that a construction company may compete uh, with an architecture group, right? It's not kind of as head on in that particular space. And so it's one of the great parts about being in a nonprofit space where Maybe you have a, a food bank, uh, after school program, and I don't know, a, a river cleanup organization, right? Those are all kind of different, but they can have ways to work together in a way that you just don't see in the for-profit space a lot of times. Because for a lot of for-profits, if they're not making money, they're not interested. And listen, completely understandable. That's totally good. But for nonprofits competing with each other, maybe... You know, there might be a little bit of competition in partnerships or endorsements or name recognition or messaging. But for the most part, we're all trying to create a better society. And so as we continue to work together, we'll be able to see those societal gains really come in our communities at a local level, a state level or even a national level. Before we get out of here, I wanted to do a rapid fire book on a book that might be a little bit out of left field uh, for our audience, but but I think it's it's still pretty good. And so, you know, let me give you a little bit of a backstory before I kind of introduce this book. Maybe a couple years ago, I, I picked up a book. I was in a mode where I wanted to expand. I was reading a lot of neuroscience books. I was reading a lot of books that kind of reaffirmed what I liked and what I believed. I said, you know what? I need to expand and start reading new books. And so I ended up picking up this book. I don't even know how I heard about it, 
But I ended up picking up this book called Excellent Sheep, The Miseducation of the American Elite in the Way to a Meaningful Life. And it's by an author by the name of William Doritzowitz. I'll put that in the show notes so you all can check it out. And so I read the book and the book is, it's well written, but there was so much about the education system in the United States and in the world that I really just don't know. There are many parts of the nonprofit space I've gravitated towards, uh, conservation, um, volunteerism, disaster response. Uh, but there's other aspects to the nonprofit space like homelessness, education, that I honestly don't really know a whole, I know a little bit, but I don't know a whole lot about it compared to others. And so I read the book a little bit. I think I maybe got 50% through the book, like halfway. And I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm not in a space to read it because I just wasn't in a place to really capture what the author was talking about. But the book, like I said, was well-written. So I said, you know, let me see other books that he's read. That's one of the best ways for me as I look at books that the author has read and then praise for the book from other authors. And so I saw he wrote this other book that I really, really appreciated. And I ended up picking it up called The Death of the Artist, How Creators Are Struggling to Survive in the Age of Billionaires and Big Tech. So I picked this book up and I loved it. And the the book does, he does one, he, his research is important. So him and his team that he works with or his publishers, I mean, they just do a really good job of laying out some really great stories. He mainly talks about how the how artists and the work that artists do are basically being digitized and demonetized in a world or they're being squeezed and devalued by big tech or in favor of big tech just by society in general, right? And the book came out in 2020, so I think it may have dropped like a month after many of the the closures. I think it dropped in like April 2020. So I had nothing but time and I read it very, you know, for the most part, fairly quickly. And as I was reading the book, I was really impressed by how he does such an amazing job of weaving the interconnections of how the 1%, how super rich are basically able to take out some of the life of an artist and basically kind of kill it very, very slowly. And he does an amazing job of, of again, shout out to him, his, his publishing team, his researchers, you know, all the folks that, that are participating in, in the writing of this book. He does an amazing job of really telling stories and allowing those stories to serve as the interconnection to so many artists in, in the world and how they're being basically pinched and squeezed unlike ever before. And I know I'm one of those people, I'm completely guilty being in college and talking to folks that are like, oh yeah, I'm going to college for an art degree and almost like laughing in their face, right? You're like, you're going, you're spending, you know, 50,000, 60,000, 80,000 for an art degree, like that's something at this moment in time in society, I'm like, we don't value that. Like, how are you gonna make money being a cello player unless you're like, you know, at the Boston Pop Symphony, you know, that type of vibe. How are you gonna make, make clay? And I was in such, you know, I was young and experienced with life. I was just in such a world where I was like, you can't make money off of art and you 
definitely can't spend money to hopefully make money off of art. And the author, William uh, the Ritzwitz, he does, like I said, he does an amazing job of really putting the mirror in front of our faces in a way of like showing how so much of society doesn't value. We value artists for what they give us and the life and the color and the the vibrant like aspects that they provide us society, but we don't want to do it with our money. We have people that are doing some amazing things in this world and bringing true joy and vibrance to life, but they just aren't getting the money that they should be getting. He talks about how people steal art. We see this a lot and we see this a lot with black women in fashion, right? Amazing black women are creating some ama amazing fashion pieces that are being stolen by other organizations like Sheen or the Kardashians. I mean, you know, insert X, Y, and Z, right? We see this with creativity on social media. I know for a really long time, we were seeing this on Twitter a lot where people were creating amazing memes or creating amazing jokes, you know, like Instagram jokes or social media jokes. And then other people, is able to, you're able to steal it because it's all digitalized. So you can just basically take it and claim it as your own. We underpay or we want things for free. So we see that a lot in terms of like piracy. That's basically piracy, right? If I create something as an artist, even if you don't like copyright it, right? If I'm creating something and you legit steal it, that's piracy. You're stealing it. Um, and so, we, and so, one of the biggest aspects that I appreciate about the book is he talks a lot about how so much in the past we did value art, and past generations and past societies we viewed the artist was a way for us to be entertained, to be informed, to be acknowledged, to be. Um, taken seriously. It was a way to serve as a form of currency in so many respects. And now with the way we do other aspects of life in terms of the industrialization, the digitalization of things, we devalue those things. And so often one of the biggest aspects of an artist is even if an artist wasn't getting money, right? Even if they were doing things for free and they're doing things for the community, for fundraising, for helping other nonprofits, for helping other local organizations, Artists, at the very least, were able to say, this is mine and get the credit. Now, in the digital world, so much of that can be stolen with such ease that artists don't even get the credit they deserve. So I like the book. If you get a chance to pick it up, it's not an easy read in terms of like, it's it's kind of long. I think it's like three, I'm looking now, it's like 320 pages. So it's long. It, it might, you know, if you're a slow reader like me, it took me, I think, about three weeks, maybe four to read the book. Um, but he doesn't shy away from too many topics. He he has a lot of money talk for you fundraisers out there, for you nonprofit uh, leaders that really enjoy hearing money talk. He talks about money in the, the hundreds of millions of dollars and even goes into the billions. But he, at the same time, he still talks about like, Muhammad down the street who's trying to make a living doing sculptures. So he does an amazing job in the book. Be sure to check it out in the show notes. I think you'll enjoy it. And if you end up reading the book, feel free to hit me up on Instagram at the Nonprofit Insider. You can always DM me. They're wide open. Love to hear from you. And give me some book recommendations while you're at it.